Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're interviewing Dr. Zoe Phil, a primary care physician and researcher currently practicing in New York City. On this episode, we'll be discussing Dr. Phil's research regarding abortion aftercare instructions and we'll get a little bit into New York's new legislation. And for our listeners who are new to the show, we make a beautiful PDF of our show notes that read more as a clinical companion and or you can sign up to be notified of upcoming guests so that you can submit your questions to be asked during the recording by becoming a patron of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. You can learn more by going to www.patreon.com slash WCH, or you can find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Hi, Zoe. Thanks so much for being on. So we like to give our listeners a brief background about our guest. So if you could talk a little bit about yourself, please tell our listeners about your background, your education and training and your current practice setting, like where you practice and what types of patients you serve. Okay, great. First of all, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the podcast. I grew up in Michigan outside of Detroit. My suburb is called St. Clair Shores and it's very charming. Sort of had a like a circuitous route to medical school, but eventually I ended up at the University of Michigan for med school. Go blue. In fact, I, I guess I did what is called a dual degree there, which means that I completed my MD and I also received a master's in public policy during my training there. And then after that, I pursued family medicine, which brought me to New York. And that's where I live now. After I did residency here, I did a fellowship in family planning, and it's through that fam- that fellowship program that I received the support to sort of conduct the research that we'll talk about today. So now that I've completed my training, I work, I have a bunch of per diem jobs, so I do a lot of really fun and challenging things. I work as a general doctor at Rikers Island and in some other affiliated city jails, and I work as a contractor for the Department of Health. For them, I do some data abstraction related to maternal mortality and severe maternal morbidity. I do some teaching up at the residency program at which I trained, and then my research is through that program as well. And I'm also an abortion doc at Planned Parenthood. So I guess I think that I need to say, I'm not entirely sure, but that I'm not speaking as a representative of any of those organizations during this podcast. And do you do your training through the READY program? Yes. So, and I know you guys have had the ready folks on before, but uh, the program that I went to in residency was a ready affiliated program. And in fact, is one of the programs or is the program that sort of runs the other ready programs. It's like the main affiliate. Okay, great. So as someone who has watched Law and Order too much, um, like (laughs) it's almost like amazing that Rikers Island, like I know somebody now that works there. Yeah, now you do. But I I can't even imagine how interesting, I guess. I don't know what word yeah, that is um, it's to work there. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely eye-opening as somebody who didn't really have a lot of exposure to the world of incarceration prior yeah. to my work there. It's an interesting place to work for sure. 
I bet. So the other question we always like to ask our guests is what informs your perspective or your practice? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? So I guess the first thing that comes to mind is, so like I said, I grew up in this suburb right outside of Detroit. And it's a weird place to have grown up because I think, you know, it never really sits right with you. Or there's, there's just something fundamental about seeing the difference between my community and Detroit. So I would drive 15 minutes and it would take me to a place that was like a completely different world. Like the segregation in that part of the country is just so impressive. I'm nodding my head because I'm from St. Louis suburbs. Yeah, it's it's exactly identical, I think. Yeah. So I think there was like something just fundamentally wrong that like just didn't really sit well with me when I was a kid. Like where I grew up, there were manicured lawns and reliable streetlights. And we went to really good public schools. And then you'd drive like not far, like really not far, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then things were very obvious, like homelessness, or there'd be like uninhabitable houses. You'd see on the local news about crime or failing schools and things like that. And it was just like, it's like so close together. And it just never... I think I always had some awareness that that was just wrong, but I didn't really, you know, obviously as like a little kid, you're not like, you don't really have a social critique of how that happened. So I think I spent a lot of energy just trying to learn about systems and about isms, like particular racism, white supremacy that sort of allow these realities to exist and to exist so close to each other. So I'd say that that's like a thing that has that I think about a lot in terms of forming my ideas that systems and policies might affect individual and communities like health and wellness. Like a lot of the times what we're doing in the clinic doesn't matter as much as some of these other big systems things and policies. Like the social determinants of health. Yeah, but sort of more than that, right? Because the social determinants of health is like saying, if you are this way, then you're less likely to have this outcome or you're more likely to have that outcome. But I think what's more interesting, and and there's been some work done on thinking about, like we used to get training in medical school on a cultural competency, but now Mm -hmm. they're more now they're more focusing on like struck what's what they're calling structural competency. Mm. So this idea that would you like in order to understand health. It's not like you have to understand like how this culture is going to interact with the medical system because that leads to a lot of stigmatizing and sort of unintended consequences. But what we need to really understand is like what structures in place allowed this disparity to exist in the first place. And then, mm-hmm. and then once we understand that, we can think about the levers with which we might affect that structure. I don't know that I'm familiar with structural competency competency yeah it's a I really like that, though yeah yeah i'll send you a few articles yes. if you want yeah please yeah it's really interesting stuff i think it helps in this idea of our social determinants of health is useful mm-hmm. for identifying problems or identifying disparities but it doesn't give you a potential toolbox with which to fix them it gives you a potential way to analyze just like their existence. For me, I found it a more helpful framework. No, I I think that definitely it's like Mm -hmm. one more step back that creates a space for you to actually make an intervention. Yeah, yeah, when you think of cultural competency, it's like, okay, X is going to cause Y. Yeah. And you you focus more on what's that Y going to be as a result of X, but then thinking of stepping one more back, how did we get here? And yeah, well, how do you address what's causing 
Yeah. I like that. But yeah, and I could see that definitely being a really useful framework in your work with mm-hmm. like working with incarcerated individuals and maternal mortality stuff. Yeah. Or, you know, any of this, any of the work I do. And so I think the other piece of it, obviously, is and being on the sort of white picket fence side of that mm-hmm. equation is just like this recognition that you, ha- you have to come to, you're like really forced to cope with is, which it's fine, is that my family benefited from the GI Bill, pol- like housing policy decisions and, Pro- you know, other policy decisions that like quashed public transit in mm-hmm. Detroit in general and white supremacy at large. And so like there's like this justice or righteousness sort of piece about wanting to fix systems and want to make the world better for other people, but also that you have a relative privilege that has also been defined by these structures that you're sort of obligated to address them, the effects of those policies, like from which you benefited. So I think growing up in a suburb of Detroit is I think one of the things that gives me that, I guess, to sort of get back to your big picture no, I, I love too, that. And I yeah. definitely want to look more into the, yeah, the structural competency. I think yeah. that alone would be a great podcast. Or, yeah, or a whole yeah. Entire <laughs> <line of> podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, sorry. Continue mm-hmm. if there was more. No, no. I guess the other thing as it pertains to when I started thinking about doing abortion care and things like that is like I have this very distinct memory of when I watched the TV coverage of the March for Women's Lives in DC in 2004. And I saw on the television, the Med Students for Choice chapter presented a thing and they called themselves the future abortion providers of America. And I hadn't even thought about going to med school at that point. But I think at this moment, I had it just like blew my mind that it could activate my spudding feminism. It didn't necessarily just have to be this ideology. It could be like a thing that I actually like dove into and activated and became part of like a thing that I could do or a thing that somebody could do, you know, you could do feminism in this way that was activated. So I think that that was probably the time that I was like, maybe I want to be an abortion doctor. All right. So like we said, today we're going to discuss Dr. Thill's research. So let's jump in. So, Zoe, can you first talk a little bit about your research that you did and more specifically what sparked your interest in that area and why you felt this research was important? So I, my research is on abortion aftercare instructions, which is like the handout that folks receive or the instructions that they're given by staff about how to sort of take care of themselves after their abortion. And so I wanted to understand like how people were sort of interfacing with the instructions themselves and how are they were responding to them, what was even out there and that sort of thing. So I guess sort of talking about the Genesis story, I worked at a abortion clinic in Michigan for a while and I made a lot of great friends in that clinic. And so I, I had had a bunch of conversations with one of my friends who would oftentimes answer phone calls from patients from the clinic, but she wasn't a trade medical provider. But she would tell me like, oh, this person had this question or this person, like, what would you have said or whatever, just to sort of throw around ideas about like what would be the right way to respond to certain people. But I remember very clearly that once she told me about a patient who had to go to work on an assembly line where they where they were required to do heavy lifting and stamping. And But the aftercare instruction she was looking at told her, don't do strenuous activity for two weeks. And she really didn't know how to navigate that problem. So she felt like she couldn't take time off and didn't know how important it was that she really not do this sort of heavy lifting. She didn't know if it counted as strenuous activity. And she really didn't understand, like, if I do this work, how will it impact my healing? And my friend was really frustrated because she couldn't really give her clear, helpful 
answer because she didn't really know need the answers to that question, those questions at that time. And I feel like there was this sort of phone call and folks like struggling to make these sorts of decisions a lot when I would talk to this particular friend that I had. So when I had an opportunity to conduct research, I thought I could maybe help, I could explore this phenomenon a little bit, like what were patients being told at other places besides this particular clinic? And what was the justification for some of these instructions or restrictions? And how much evidence was out there supporting them? How did patients, like I said, interact or interface with them? And how were their lives impacted? So I just think that all of those questions were interesting to me. How did you go about doing this research then? So we did the the big project. It was three phases. The first phase was that we sort of reached out. There's a, a list of abortion clinics that you can publicly access. So we basically found a, one of these lists and called all the clinics on it and just asked them to send us their instructions. And we also like reached out to our own professional networks and asked folks that we knew that were working in abortion care to send us their instructions too. And then I basically just cataloged like what was out there. As a first part, just to sort of describe, you know, the range of, of what folks are being told across the country. And then the second part of the research is a survey. So we worked with four different clinics who had four very different types of aftercare instructions and enrolled patients at each of these sites to, to take a survey, which we would email to them two weeks after their abortion appointment and ask them about ways that they interfaced with the instructions, what they thought about them, were they helpful, things like that. And then at the end of that survey, folks would be invited to do interviews. So we also did an interview component and we ended up interviewing like 26 folks. So that's how we went about getting some of the answers to some of those questions I mentioned earlier. So you mentioned that there were some clinics that had some very different instructions. Why do you think many clinics aftercare instructions vary and why is that problematic? That's a really good question. I mean, I think the instructions vary in part because there's not a lot of it's not a there's not a lot of good research about what we should be telling people. And let me just say, let me say two things. First, that there are like a lot of really good instructions. So I, I think I have a tendency to talk about the problematic ones because it's easier to do critiquing sometimes. But I, I think I also want to make sure that throughout the course of this, we get an opportunity that I can like highlight some of the other really good ones. So we'll, I'll just make sure that I be mindful of that as we get later into the results stuff. But I just want to say that up front. But in general, I think that it's really hard to study abortion outcomes that are what we call adverse. And this is the thing that that doctors care about, right? So doctors tend to be risk averse. The risks that we study and learn about are pretty narrow, right? So the framing of medical literature, for example, is going to relate to, in particular, in abortion, is going to be thinking about dangerous bleeding, infection, retained products, or a need for a procedural intervention, right? It's like a very narrow frame, first of all. So when folks are crafting these instructions, these are the risks that they're thinking about trying to avoid. And I suspect this sort of happens in all sorts of medicines. And I've, I've presented at a few conferences where we also critique aftercare instructions from folks who have dental procedures and folks who have like other eye procedures. So it's like abortion is not the only world in which this happens. It's like a medical framing where we're not necessarily thinking about other adverse effects, like how do how do my instructions impact people? So for me, thinking about if the reality is that you take unnecessary days of work because you feel like it's unsafe for you to work, that's an adverse outcome for me, or you know the way that I'm trying to frame it. And it's an adverse effect if you feel like you can't pick up your 16 month old kid 
right? Or if it's an adverse effect, if you have to disclose your abortion to someone to whom you otherwise wouldn't disclose. So there's other adverse effects that we might be like causing by our aftercare instructions, but that's not the way that we're traditionally framing medicine and the instructions that we're giving. Does it does it make sense? Mm-hmm. I, for me, like the worst of all of these is it's an adverse effect of our instructions. <laughs> if we're unintentionally messaging that abortion is something other than super duper safe. So I think that that's the first piece. And the other thing is that it, it is super hard in abortion, any of these other tra- more traditionally conceived adverse effects like bleeding, infection, they're, there's like, it's, they're all like really close to zero. The chance that any of this happens is really, really low. So it's hard to design studies that can prove if I give like this instruction versus mm-hmm. this instruction, there is or is not a difference between whether or not they have an adverse outcome. That makes sense. So, for example, in my research, in our survey, we did we did 344 surveys. And not easy to recruit that many people, but, you know, there's not like a ton of money out there to do abortion research, right? So it's a, not a small study size. That's respectable. Thank you. Totally <laughs> respectable. I was, I'm impressed, really. Thank you. So there were no, there were none, there were no adverse outcomes in my study. Wow. Like, cause we, we, we asked folks like, did you have to go in urgent care or an emergency room or whatever? And self, like self-reported, there were no real, the way that we would define an adverse event, there were no real adverse events. So you could imagine that if you're trying to power a study, if you're trying to like recruit yeah. enough people to detect a difference, you'd have to recruit thousands, thousands of people. So it's hard for us to get this real answer statistically, like statistically speaking, which is the other way that doctors frame shit. It's like in order to get statistical significance, we would have to power a study that would be, it's just like burdensome to do that work. Right. So my argument the argument that I make is let's say that there is a small statistically significant difference. Right. It's definitely not clinically significant. Right. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk later about this, but it turns out that people aren't really doing a lot of the stuff we're saying, and we still have really low infection rates or that there's just like a broad range of like what folks are being told and yet adverse events are very very low mm-hmm. right so it just it can't really matter and so i'm thinking in my own mind we need just like so we just need to really de-emphasize some of these things that we're thinking about as adverse events and really think about the ways that we're sort of unintentionally impacting folks lives in some cases by giving alarming instructions or instructions that are not unnecessarily restrictive if that makes sense it totally makes sense. And this speaks to the whole point of this podcast is about communication. Exactly. And so this instruction is a form of communication itself. And it also has hidden communication, although not overt, like don't do these things. There's also unintentional consequences to this. And yeah, if if you've got this litany of you could bleed, you could get infection. Yeah, you're like, Oh, geez, here, I thought it was a safe procedure. Now I think that something terrible is going to happen to me. But again, like you said, the reality is likely it's not going to happen. But because it's very unlikely to happen. Yeah, very unlikely to happen. But yet you you have to. Yeah. So I definitely this is a really big communication piece. And aftercare instructions are a huge communication tool. So I definitely that definitely makes sense. It's really weird to have such passion about something that is so, like, so weird. Like, when I tell people, I'm like, oh, I'm studying aftercare instructions, <laughs> it just feels so unsexy at all. But then when I, like, go into it, it's real dumb. <laughs> oh, you are among nerds. I think it has greater implications, too. Thank you. I feel at home here. Thank you. Maybe you have this little piece of the pie. Yeah, for sure. I think it can lead to other areas. Like you were saying about dental 
self-care. It reminded me when you were talking, we would have this issue frequently in my previous clinical practice where women would have to be off work for whatever reason during their pregnancy. You know, maybe they're having some bleeding or contractions. And then the doctors would clear them to go back to work by providing a note. But the note had on it, can't lift over 20 pounds. And some of our patients were medical professionals, nurses, medical assistants. Home health aides. Yeah. And their employer wouldn't let them work with that stipulation. And so then they weren't getting paid and, you know, they had to f- yep. file disability or, I mean, a lot of the times that was an, a huge issue. So I think that's like another one. And, and it's like, well, what is really the risk if they do lift over 20 pounds or is there any? Yeah. And there, I can't speak to folks who are having prenatal pregnancy complications. I, you know, I don't right. know, but I do know that back in 2009, there was a, a study, I can send you guys the link to this study in which a bunch of researchers looked at the recommendations that we give in routine gynecologic procedures, like certain kinds of hysterectomies and postpartum recommendations. And they basically went through each of the, like the typical or traditional recommendations. And they did a, a lit review of what is all the evidence. And including they looked at some of the bench science research that would help you understand the physiology or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and I remember reading this one thing that even in even in procedures where there is an incision, so like a C-section or if you did a hysterectomy that required you to do an incision, even if there's an incision, it is like almost physiologically impossible to dehiss or like tear apart that incision with how much force a human can make during a Valsalva maneuver. So if you're going to lift something, like the risk is in theory that you, you create so much intra-abdominal pressure that you tear your incision. But they had done some studies that showed that or they they sort of looked at and reported back on some studies that showed that it's basically like virtually impossible to create a Valsalva that's that strong. And I think also they I I feel like this is true, but I'm not sure. So I don't know if you should but and I'll send you guys the, the study. But I kind of remember them saying that you create the, the strongest Valsalva when you're pooping. Which everybody has to do. <laughs> you can't ban that. I mean, we do instruct folks to like, keep your stool soft, right? So you're not like trying to push super right, hard. Right. But it's... Um, mm-hmm. Anyway. I'm sure that's true, though. So what did you find out from your study? So like I said, this is a three-part study. So I'll sort of talk about my findings, if you don't mind, in sort of each of those parts. So let me just say, too, for the first part... We analyzed 84 unique aftercare instructions. So we looked at those for both medication abortion and procedural abortion. And those 84 instructions represented 51 unique organizations. Some groups gave us both and some didn't, right? So we got 51 organizations that sent us things in this way. So in total, we got 84 unique aftercare instructions. But those 51 organizations, some of them have more than one clinic. So we look, we were, we're looking at what's representing 264 clinics in the United States. So it gets a pretty big chunk of clinics. And, and I, I guess the first part where there are a couple of things. The first is like content. So we found that most aftercare instructions contain at least three main things. First is something about expected symptoms. Doctors sometimes refer refer to this as like anticipatory guidance. It's like, this is what you can expect. And the second is about symptom management. So if you have this, then do this to improve it, right? And a lot of times that could be as simple as like, we gave you this script for ibuprofen for you're having pain or bleeding or whatever. And then the third thing is something about recommended behavior changes. So that's like the content piece. 
We also found out that within each of these, there's a wide range of instructions out there. So like thinking about the behavior piece, there are some instructions that say avoid anything in the vagina for four weeks. But there's some others that say go ahead and do it whenever you're ready. There's also a small, in terms of content, there's also like a small number of instructions that might have ambiguities in them that you might be really confused by. For example, like instruction tells you don't have sex for two weeks, but they also tell you go back to your regular activities whenever you're feeling ready. So let's say it's like one week, I'm feeling ready to have sex. I consider sex one of my regular activities. Do I do it or do I wait two weeks? Right. Like which of these two instructions? So there's like that sort of ambiguity in some of them. And then there's just some that have like conflicting information or erroneous information in them. And I would say there is a small proportion that do. Yeah. And there's also just like a range. The other thing I sort of looked at was this like more qualitative piece, right? So there's like a range of tones from comforting to alarming, a range of like language from very technical to lay. There's some instructions that talk about abortion in a purely medical framework and other that sort of place it in a sociopolitical context. They'll say like, tell your story, go vote. And there's some that use pictures, some that have links to online sources or videos, some that come with, there's one that has like a journal that folks can like journal in if they haven't want to record their symptoms or their thoughts or feelings. So it's, it's like a really wide spread of what's out there. And it was really cool to sort of see that spread. So I would say that's basically the findings from the first part. So the survey is also interesting. Like I said, 344 respondents from four different clinics. The the findings here were really interesting because I obviously have my own biases and like what I think people are going to think about these instructions. But the first thing that I found really surprising or that that was a, a big finding for us. And let me just say also that was preliminary analysis on this survey. Like we haven't cleaned the data and things like that. So we're still sort of working on it, but it's a descriptive analysis that we're doing. So I'm not I'm not super worried that things will vary very much from what I'm talking about here. But people do not remember at all. And this is only two weeks after they were given the instructions. They don't remember at all what they were told. Either that or they're being told something different in the clinic than what the instructions themselves are saying. Because when we compare people's recollection of what their instructions were to the actual clinic handout that we had in our hands, there wasn't a lot of concordance. So for example, there's one clinic that was like very explicitly, you can have sex whenever you're feeling ready. Only about 10% of folks thought that that was true. And a quarter of them remember being told that they had to wait two weeks. And another quarter of them remember that they had to wait three or more weeks. So in, in this sort of phenomenon was true throughout. There's just a lot of misremembering of what folks found there's also a pretty sizable proportion of folks that are actually changing their behaviors to adhere to instructions. So we asked questions like, which things did you want to do but didn't do because you were told otherwise or whatever? And for example, one in five said they wanted to take a bath after their abortion, but they didn't because of the instructions. And about a half said they had to change their work or school routines in order to adhere to the instructions. So that sort of speaks to like, maybe that's real finding like related to the instructions, but it also is hard to write survey questions that can isolate what did you change because of the instructions versus what did you change because you had an abortion and you're expecting to take some days off or maybe you're feeling awesome or whatever, whatever. So that's one of the reasons I'm glad we did the interviews to get at some of those ambiguities. But in any case, so even with the range of instructions and people changing their behaviors to adhere to them or whatever, people think they're fine. 97% of people felt that they 
help them take care of themselves. So people are just generally satisfied with the instructions that they that they were given, no matter what. Like, and this is like across the board, there's no difference between any of the clinics in terms of how people did or didn't think that they were helpful. So it's just like so interesting to think about. I just, in my mind, I just wonder if that's related to people are just happy that they aren't pregnant anymore and they got generally like good care at this clinic and they don't think about uh, the instructions as like this isolated thing that they have the opportunity to critique or analyze or whatever. They're just glad they're not pregnant anymore and they just want to report back in some survey about their just overall happiness or satisfaction perhaps. And they might not even like care that they had to change their behaviors or like it might seem very small to them to have to take a few days off of work in the context of what they believe is keeping themselves safe. So, and, and I think that's another reason we were really excited to get to the interviews because if we confront people with like there are other clinics that say this or digital abortion is safe even if you don't do these things. Now you have an opportunity to talk about that a little bit more. In any case, what else? Oh, wild. We found that everybody thinks abortion is safe. Well, not everybody, but most people think abortion is safe. And a lot of folks say in reading the instructions, they felt that abortion was either safer than they previously thought or equally as safe as they previously thought. Nonetheless, about one third of people think it is either likely or very likely that you get an infection after abortion. I had a question. Yeah. I don't know if you asked this or what you found, but did you find that women were even reading the instructions? I don't think that we asked that question, (laughs) but I can tell you that it like it from the qualitative piece, what there's a range. Like there's some people who like look at it all the time. And then there's some women that we're talking to who sort of skim it once and put it away. And they're just like, this is where it is in case I need it. And they never end up needing it. Okay. I can just say from, from doing some of the interviews yeah, yeah, that it seems like there's definitely a range of how people do or don't interact, like interface mm-hmm. with the instruction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just always wonder because I personally never look at them. But I guess the, the the biggest thing is some might argue that if patients are satisfied with what they're given, then we don't necessarily need to even think about this anymore. But of course, I think like if you're changing your behaviors unnecessarily and you don't think abortion is super duper safe after you've already interfaced with our clinics, then there's work to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still not satisfied with them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then what did you find in your phase three with the interview? Yeah. So we're still doing the coding part of the analysis of our phase three. So this is like super preliminary stuff, but I can sort of just talk in general about some of the things I've heard or whatever. Yeah. But I've heard some really interesting stories about folks having to disclose abortions to folks that they didn't want to disclose to about people feeling guilty for not being able to follow certain instructions about folks trying to compare the information they're looking at on this particular sheet with information they're receiving from or that they received at a previous abortion at a different clinic or information they got online or what their friends are telling them about their own abortion, about how people like think about what's happening in their bodies after abortion in terms of like physically happening. It's really fascinating to have folks explain to you their understanding of the justification for some of the instructions. And it's like really clear that there's so much of misinformation about like what actually happened to my body during that experience. So sometimes folks think that they've been 
been cut and that certain behaviors like sex might like re-injure a wound. I've heard that. And then a lot of people have this idea about quote unquote like being open for an extended period of time after the procedure. And they, they therefore like think about themselves as being exposed or vulnerable during this time. And so some of those themes I'm excited to tease out a little bit more. I mean, what it sounds like what you're talking about, a lot of it isn't maybe necessarily aftercare, but maybe should there have been more instruction before the procedure, more education? Yeah, it's hard to say like yeah. where this needs to happen or how much it does happen or doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things So I've started recently doing community workshops, like where we're doing like papayas, just to destigmatize abortion in general for lay people. We're not trying to make people competent at doing home abortions or anything, but just to like have folks in a community get together and hold on to some of the instruments and mm-hmm. just sort of go through the process and learn what certain things are called and talk about the anatomy of the uterus. It's super powerful. Like I was doing community workshop the other day and somebody who had had a really traumatic experience with their abortion had come and just talked about how she didn't have any idea of what happened with her body and how it was so hard to heal emotionally from that experience because it was just like all mysterious. She didn't know how to like wrap her mind around what had happened. And like I said, I think the the vast majority, like we know from science, like we know from study after study that like most people are relieved after their abortion. Most people like don't have like ongoing trauma. So I tell this story to sort of exemplify like one case, but it's not the reality that people are like going home super traumatized after their abortions at all routinely. But I think this idea that people don't really know what's happening during the procedure can be, it's just like a thing for us to really work on as a medical community. I think this happens in all sorts of procedures. Like you know somebody what happened during their tummy tuck or their bypass surgery or you know, any sort of medical procedure, like we're just shitty at communicating to patients about what we're doing or like why you're on <laughs> this medicine instead of that medicine, like not even procedural, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is just like a, across the board, but yeah. I think allowing folks to have the opportunity to really understand the physiology of it. And sure. And there are some people who they don't want to know, they don't want to see that stuff. It would be alarming if they did, like everybody's different, right? So there might be somebody who show a video of like what happens during an abortion to them and they might that might be very alarming for somebody but someone else might find it quite comforting because it's not really what they thought or what they had heard you know so I I, there's definitely a range but it was really interesting to talk about folks about their idea of healing after the abortion and how that relates to their understanding of like what actually happened during the procedure I think it's hard to make autonomous decisions about what pieces of the instructions you're gonna ignore (laughs) which parts you're going to think about sort of hearing to differently based on your understanding of how your body is or is not at risk. So I want to say, A, what an awesome interview guide to write. Because as you're talking, I just think you were very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) And thinking about that, like what happened to your body and talk about that. Yeah. I think that's super cool. And I also love that you just basically summed up the reason for our podcast. Healthcare providers are really shitty at communicating. Yeah, like, yeah thank you. Yes, no, exactly. Generally speaking, by yeah, the way. Like, no, yeah. for sure. When you guys were like, this is what the podcast is about, I was like, I don't think we're going to do any of the Riker stuff. You want to know about my research, I think, because it's like exactly this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is a little off topic, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, not entirely, but so I worked 
at an abortion clinic mm-hmm. and gave discharge instructions. And honestly, I don't even remember what they were. <laughs> but one of my issues that I attempted to address when I was there was contraception. Yeah, this is fraught. And so you're kind of talking more about like the immediate healing from an abortion. Yeah. But did you address at all like this issue of avoiding unplanned pregnancies in the future? Yeah. So let me say, first of all, that there's also really good research on this topic in particular, like do people want to talk about birth control options at their abortion appointment? And uh, another researcher with our group found that 50% of people are not at all interested in talking about birth control at the time of their abortion. And to a certain extent, this idea of avoiding unplanned pregnancies is another thing that one of our researchers is sort of working out, teasing out this idea that if abortion is super duper, duper, duper safe and super duper effective, and we aren't claiming any moral problem with it, then we need to really problematize this idea of like avoiding multiple abortions, right? Because if you have one, it's safe. If you have two, it's safe. If you have 10, it's safe. So we have to really like think about why we are encouraging people to avoid autonomously deciding that this is the way that they're going to control their fertility. And to a certain extent, when you bring up this concept of birth control in the context of somebody's abortion appointment, it messages to someone that you that we don't want you here again, you know, or or that whatever, in a way, right, we want to give people the opportunity to like control their fertility in a, a different effective way, if this isn't their ideal, right? Like not everybody wants to come back for a bunch of abortions, right? Because it's not probably for most people very pleasant. Some people, it's fine and acceptable, but but a lot of people find it painful or uncomfortable. Well, and, and it's super expensive. In some places, super expensive. In New York, it's not. In Iowa, it's like almost impossible to get one. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So. No, no, for sure. For sure. There's definitely different political content. So like, right, right, right. we need to work on all those structural things mm-hmm. to make abortion accessible and affordable, right? But I definitely see what you're saying. But we also need to make sure that folks who choose abortion as the way that they uh, control their family size aren't stigmatized in a particular right. way, right? So and it's true that when we ask people about this, about reading about birth control and their aftercare instructions, or talking about birth control with the person who cared for them at the abortion clinic, like, what was that like? And did it, we didn't ask this in an overt way, but we're trying to get at, like, did it feel coercive? Or did it feel like it was just an opportunity to make certain things available or accessible to you to see how folks were reacting? And again, just like everything, there is a range of how people interpret being asked to birth control in the context of their abortion appointment, and people's like reaction to that. And I'm sure that different providers do it in different ways. But you know, our community, like the family planning community in general has had like a long history of reproductive coercion, in terms of providers and systems thinking about like there's certain groups of people who should parent or mother and there's some that shouldn't and the way that we engage or interact or counsel certain patients is we know this also from studies like changes the based on what our own biases are and this is one of the ways in which we can sort of unintentionally like coerce people is by really trying to nail down the birth control thing to somebody who may not be interested in birth control at that time. I think that's awesome way to put I didn't it. think about that. I didn't really I mean I thought about it but not in that to yes. that extent. Yeah. Like what message are you sending by saying, hey, what birth control are we gonna do? And I think of my own research on 
responsible sexual behavior and what does that mean? And yeah, in the when I looked at the literature, number of abortions is used as a quantifiable factor for oh, yeah. what is irresponsible sexual behavior. So 100%. But what was interesting is then when I talked to college women, for them, needing an abortion, and I'm not saying for all women, so don't, don't generalize this. For some women, needing an abortion may have been the result of an irresponsible choice. Sure. We'll loosely say that. Sure. However, given the context in which they make that decision, for example, to protect their college goals or career aspirations or family aspirations, it then becomes the responsible choice. Right. So it may be that they made a bad choice that got themselves into that situation, but to have one is actually responsible. Yeah. Which then goes in the face of literature, which just says they're all irresponsible. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting then to just kind of connect all those dots. Yeah. In my clinic, it's so funny because people who don't do uh, birth control counseling that much assume like, oh, there's so many options. Somebody has to be able to pick one option, right? Like there's no... There's no reason somebody can't find a good birth control option for them. I hear that all the time, especially from mother primary care <laughs> docs who don't do abortion care or don't do a lot of reproductive health care in general. But I would say there are a ton of reasons that folks don't want to take we're so off topic, you guys don't want to take certain birth controls. First of all, if you have an estrogen contraindication, then what's left for you <laughs> is like progesterone only pills, which work not very effectively. Other sort of like non-hormonal methods like uh, rhythm or like rhythm plus where you're sort of measuring your basal body temperature and doing all these predictive ways to determine when you've ovulated and things like that, which also assume that you have the power to decide in your relationship when you do or don't have sex, mm -hmm. which... Okay. Or something that's implanted into your body. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of folks in particular in communities that have been affected by reproductive coercion or sterilization for sterilization. Like people do not necessarily feel comfortable with there being an implant in their body. Right. Mm -hmm. So it is so common for me to have people who've like tried estrogen based methods and, or, you know, have a contraindication to them or not felt like they sat well with their body. Right. And then but not really like the other options for the non-estrogen based contraceptives as well. It happens all the time. And then I say, listen, do what you can do. We talk a, a little bit about some of the ways that you can predict fertility in your own body. And, and then I say like, but if you get pregnant, just come like talk to me and we'll figure out what you want to do. We provide abortion in this clinic. And if that's the option that you that you want to go. And there are a lot of people who that is of all of the options. They don't want to take something, they don't want their body exposed to a particular chemical or like the way that they're sort of thinking about like hormone every day, mm -hmm. but they will subject their body to a procedure or they did the medication abortion and find it tolerable. Then they don't have to worry about birth control for however long. And then on the odd chance that they get pregnant, they can do a thing that's short-lived and that is fine for them. And so I just try and really normalize that or just say like, that's also fine. If that's where you're at, then I can help that. I can help you do that. And that's okay. I love all this. I am very glad I asked about that because. <laughs> yes. I know. And then I'm like looking at the time and all the questions we have left. I'm like, oh, I love all of this. But. <laughs> 
sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah, and I know that wasn't necessarily the part of your research, but I think what you said is just yeah, huge, really good. It hits home mm-hmm. like Christine Dellendorf's episode yes. about contraceptive decision making. Yes, yeah, and like, is that the right time to bring it up and in, mm-hmm. in the abortion setting? And it really goes into the fact like it depends on the woman and what they want and mm-hmm. yeah, how they think about all these things. Yeah, and you just have to do a lot of work as a provider to sort of reel in your own biases about abortion and about parenting and about your own internalized racism, classism, whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like work that we have to do. And a quick plug for episode 22 is about sex shame and looking at shame that you hold yourself. So I think a lot of what you're talking about would also relate to listening to that episode, understanding where your shame comes, the messaging you've received and how are you applying that to your practice? Yeah, cool. I know that you had mentioned some things that surprised you already. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention that really surprised you with your findings. So thinking about the content analysis, I would say that the, my favorite instruction I have to tell you guys was don't ride horseback. <laughs> that would surprise me. I didn't expect to read that. What happens if you ride horseback? No, I have no idea, you guys. No Is this idea. A, like in Wyoming or Montana? No, <laughs> no. If, I'm not going to say where it came from because yeah, I don't want anybody to be identified by right. whatever because I promised that they wouldn't. But it was in an, let's just say an urban area. <laughs> it was wild. Okay. And like not okay. an urban area in a portion of the country, which I at least myself like associate like <laughs> with horseback riding. <laughs> but more seriously, I think I was most surprised because I didn't expect to see this at all. But about 30% of instructions recommend routine temperature taking. So I'm not talking about if you feel sick, then take your temperature. It's like, take your temperature twice a day for five days kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that has to message something about infection risk, right? Like, yeah. and also, you're not able to, tr- to trust your body or listen to your body in a way that is effective. You need this medical tool that we're going to mm-hmm. recommend you buy in advance of your abortion appointment. And so I think there's like a lot of hidden messages in that. But I was surprised that it was like, thir- like a high proportion of clinics that, that did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I, I sort of touched on this before, but I guess given the impact the instructions do seem to have on people's lives, and I'm, I, you know, I, I'm surprised that people are satisfied with them. I think, like I said before, just that I think it might speak to their overall satisfaction with their abortion. But the other sort of like thing I think is interesting about that finding or that people are changing their behaviors and instructions are kind of like shit in a lot of cases, but people are fine with them. And I think it sort of also speaks to this deference to biomedicine thing, like just in general that people are just like disempowered when confronted with the com- like medical community overall. And and I think it's also emerging from some of these interviews. So I'm excited to tease that out a little bit more during analysis. But preliminarily, I feel like there's a lot of folks who say, in listening to my body, I felt ready to do X, but they didn't do X because rules are rules. That's a phrase that comes up. Like, I'm not a doctor. There's a lot of like, I'm not going to play doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, these people went to medical school. They must know whatever. What do I know? That kind of really minimizing someone's own or expertise and analyzing what's happening with their own bodies. So I'm looking forward to sort of exploring that more. So aftercare instructions are an important piece of communication. So you've kind of said along the way what different instructions said and evidence behind some of it. But what do you think these instructions or guidelines should say if you were to write your own? 
So I think now this might be a good time for me to say like there were some instructions I read and I was super pumped about. There's some clinics that are just really great at centering the patient's experience and thinking about the work they provide, being thoughtful about the context of abortion in the U.S. or in their particular space. And there's some instructions that are really thoughtful about the care they are providing for folks who've been sort of pushed to the margins, including trans folks seeking abortion care. And so there's some instructions out there that are really thoughtful about the way they use gender pronouns, for example, and refer to their patients as patients instead of women. So I think that that is really impressive and thoughtful. I guess to answer your question, I think there's a lot of misinformation in the universe about abortion in particular and and about abortion safety. And it like I said, it just blows my mind that one in three people who've interfaced and interacted and had the with our clinics, with people who provided them abortion care, still think that they're likely to have an infection afterwards. And what that does in your psyche when you're engaging in a healing process or in like recovery or sort of getting back to normal. And so I just think about using this as a potential tool that we have. Like, so if one in four people have abortions, there's like one in four have read our aftercare instructions or have copies of them and are sharing them with their other support systems. It's like a tool that exists in the universe that we can really use to spread important information about abortion since there's so much misinformation out there. So I just think about it being like sort of a missed opportunity to have more proactive messaging about the safety of abortion and how common it is as an experience. So I guess when I think about like my ideal aftercare instructions, and there's probably a lot of people in medicine who would disagree with me, but I would say there's five things that we should tell people. And first, and we didn't talk about this a lot in terms of my findings, but you're not pregnant. So there's like a lot of people who are worried that they have retained products or they're worried that the the abortion didn't work as like a thing that's like driving some of their fears. So I think just because abortion is so effective, people just need to get a message. You're not pregnant. Full stop. Done. One. The second thing is you're safe. Your abortion was safe. You're safe. Like nothing freaking bad is going to happen to you. Also full stop. (laughs) And just really a clear driven home message about safety. The third is that Most people feel relieved after the abortion, but if you feel sad or angry or any other thing, that's fine also. But we need to make allowances for folks who have experiences that they're worried are not normal, right? So if you have any concerns about what you're feeling or what happens with your body in the next few days, like we're here for you, here's how how, how you get a hold of us. And then I think fifth, it's important to message abortion is super common. Think about activating these folks if they're if they're interested in being activated, right? Some people just want to come to our clinics and get care and forget that abortion exists and whatever, whatever. But there's a subset of folks who this is an opportunity in which they are taking control of their reproductive destiny and they might be activatable in terms of thinking about the movement. And so they should be given the opportunity to engage at that time if they're interested. So just abortion is super common. Here's a way you can get in touch with other people who have had abortions if you're interested. Here's how you can get involved in ensuring that other folks have the ability to get the same safe care in the future if you're interested, that sort of message. I think like the five essential things that should be on all these instructions. And I guess the other the other thing that I also struggle with is the anticipatory guidance piece. Thinking about is it important for us to communicate to folks a range of what they might experience in terms of bleeding or clotting or cramping or whatever. But I find that in doing so, it alarms folks. Like if I say like it's normal to have 
this minimal amount of bleeding and also this maximum amount of bleeding so that folks don't really worry about what's happening to them because it's probably somewhere in between there. Like sometimes reading about what that maximum amount of bleeding is can be very alarming to folks. But the chances that they have it ever are really close to zero still. So I don't know how necessary that is to include. I can see providers listening to this and being like, oh, absolutely. I'm going to tell them that there needs Mm -hmm. to be space for, yeah, this is what you could expect. Or even if this happens to you, then you need to call. But maybe can you put that within this greater framework of the chances of this happening are extremely slim, but yeah. yeah. yeah, So I could see them being like, yeah, that has to be on there. Right, right. Well, for legal reasons too, yeah. right? So I think that that's another thing that drives some of these aftercare instructions is clinics don't want to get phone calls from people mm-hmm. if they're unnecessary. And clinics want to make sure that they sort of do a CYA thing, which is like reasonable, especially in abortion care. So I completely understand some of that piece. Let me just say that people are calling the clinics no matter what the instructions say. Like and that, that's <laughs> another sure. thing that happened that we found from our surveys. It doesn't much matter what kind of anticipatory guidance you can you have if somebody is scared or worried or even like curious about what their symptoms are they're calling the clinic in a mm-hmm. lot of cases so i so i don't think that that that's helpful necessarily in terms of well, i think what the actual goal is which is like minimizing phone calls but let me just say that the the way that a lot of these instructions describe the range of clotting, for example, bleeding or clotting is like, they'll say like, if you have a clot the size of a lemon, that's when it's time to call the clinic. How like, what? And people react to that. They're like, whoa, how is how am I gonna have a clot? What the you know, I, I also feel like if somebody's got a clot the size of a fucking lemon, they're gonna call the clinic and let you know that that's happening, (laughs) even if you don't tell them to right? Like, especially if you're an open, like if you message openness and willingness to hear from people, and you're not dick, and your your clinic sucks, (laughs) and it has like an unintentionally messaged, like if you're doing your job well as a provider, and then somebody bleeds out a clot that is the size of a lemon, they're gonna call you. But I know that's not how medicine works. And I know that there are other things that dictate how we give instructions other than like reality (laughs) or this particular reality. Yeah. So how would you suggest providers go about updating their instructions or finding evidence to create new ones? Or is your end goal to create an evidence-based guideline? What can they do? I think what, what I really would encourage providers to do is not look for the evidence that they're accustomed to looking for, right? So just like we talked about the before, you're never going to be able to do a study that shows that having sex one week after your abortion is risky because you're not going to be able to get enough people and have any sort of infection or whatever you're worried about Mm -hmm. to power that study, right? So we, we need to really change our thinking about what we are traditionally defining as adverse outcomes, I think is like the challenge that I would pose to folks who are writing these. And I think even if you were to power a particular study, and let's say in theory, like hypothetically in this world where you power a study, and you find that there's a statistically important impact of having people be restrictive with their behaviors versus being permissive with their behaviors. I don't think that that difference would be clinically important. It's so small, right? Like if I have to ask 10,000 people in order to get like three in one group and one in another, that's not important for any particular individual making a decision about what to do with their bodies. Well, and ethically, the other standpoint is, is you can't say, hey, we're not going to give you instructions just to see what happens. Yeah. Or hey, we're going to have you just do this just to see. Like, So I could see the the opposite of that too is, yeah, hard to find evidence. So I guess your answer does make sense. 
So this question is a little bit off topic, but we would like to bring something up since you are an abortion provider and living in New York. So as you probably know, there's been some recent legislation that has led to a public belief that in the state of New York, you can get an abortion up to the last day before the baby is born. Can you talk a little bit about this piece of legislation and what it has meant for you as an abortion provider in New York and for people living in New York. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about the Reproductive Health Act because there is a ton of misinformation in the universe, including did you guys hear the latest about what Donald Trump was saying in one of his Midwest rallies recently? It was yesterday. He was like, what happens is that they like wrap the baby up after delivery and then the mom and the doctor get to decide, should we kill it or not? at that point, basically. (laughs) You guys have really, really made us monsters in this really intense way. But that's not what's happening here, people. So let me just say, so the RHA, it permits abortion to occur after 24 weeks. The limit in New York used to be 24 weeks. So we sort of removed that limit under the circumstances that the person's health is compromised or if the fetus has a condition that is not compatible with life. So those are the two conditions in which you're able to Uh, perform an abortion after 24 weeks. So women after 24 weeks can't just suddenly say, you know what, I changed my mind. Like there has to be a medical. Okay. Yes, there has to be a medical justification for it. And the anti-choicers argue that like that's not enough because they they imagine that doctors are out here basically creating medical justifications so that they can kill babies. But that that's not like a thing that's happening. So anyways, I don't mean to be so glib or like be like laughing about it because it's really dangerous, their rhetoric, but it is uh, laughable in some ways. A few reasons this legislation is really important, you guys. So for most people, anatomic anomalies, they aren't really diagnosed in most cases until after 20 weeks when you get your anatomy scan. So let's say you get your anatomy scan at 20 weeks and then you discover during then that your pregnancy has an abnormality which isn't compatible with life and then you have exactly four weeks to determine what you're going to do about that and how to and like navigate the complexities of our shit healthcare system. There shouldn't be a maximum of four weeks limits on that for folks who are struggling with that decision. So I, I can tell a story actually of one patient who... I was taking care of in prenatal care. Everything was like fine. It was like a desired pregnancy. And she really thought that after she discovered that a fetal anomaly that they discovered at the anatomy scan was incompatible with life, she thought like she wanted to carry the pregnancy to term and have a normal labor and delivery. And she thought that that would be healing for her and to sort of be able to go through the grieving process with like a child that she had given birth to or whatever. Like that's like the decision that she made. And then just became like increasingly difficult for her to be pregnant psychologically so like she talked to her family she prayed on it and she decided that she wanted something different it was like very just psychologically distressing for her to be pregnant with a baby that she loved and that was going to die and so but she she decided that she wanted to terminate the pregnancy around 25 weeks but we couldn't help her anymore and we tried to get her to another provider in dc but she wasn't able to afford travel and to take time off work and to find child like we just it was like too logistic difficult. She couldn't be in the hospital to get her procedure right near, down the street from her. It just like became too administrative burden. So she suffered. She like continued this pregnancy for like, 15 more weeks. And it's just awful experience for her. And continues to be a thing that we talk about when I see her in my primary care clinic. 
And so if the RHA were in place, then she would have been able to make that decision and get the care that she wanted when she wanted it. So I think about her story and just like another communication piece, since I know you guys care about that, that we think about stories like hers as like what we could, what we might consider like a good abortion story, quote unquote, good abortion story. And that you can look at her case as one that she's sort of like a character, somebody you like might be able to relate to and she's like no blame or shame or stigma. There's also people who want to end their pregnancies for other reasons after 24 weeks that should also have that right. If you're no longer part lifetime partner to the father of your potential child for whatever reason, or if you find it difficult to make a decision about whether or not to have an abortion, you happen to decide after that 24 weeks, or if you get laid off and you're looking at like a different set of financial realities or whatever the reason is, you should be able to access abortion after 24 weeks, right? And that I think needs to be part of when we're doing advocacy. But you can't though. Absolutely not. Okay. Okay. We're doing advocacy. We are always talking about these stories that are very like traumatic and about fetal anomalies Mm -hmm. and whatever. And when we do that advocacy, we're leaving behind, we're sort of conceding that you shouldn't be able to get otherwise an abortion after 24 weeks. And I feel like there's just such a range of reasons why people would want to get that care. And so we just like need to be careful in communicating only these messages of people who are otherwise quite responsible with their decisions and who've really been thoughtful and really in a jam, even though they like got pregnant with an IUD in place, right? So we have these like good abortion stories and then abortion stories in which we don't want to acknowledge that people make decisions that are different than decisions we might consider like quote unquote responsible. And the reality is we should all be able to access a safe medical procedure whenever we want to. And so I just want to say that like the RHA doesn't do anything for any of those other people, right? It's only folks where there's a fetal anomaly or your health is at risk. So we, we have a lot of work to do in advocating beyond what the RHA d- did. Well, and I'm sure like if your health is at risk, that's a very gray, you know, I think that people talk about goals. Cool does that include mental health and yeah. risk of suicide and yeah I think it's it's hard to know how different providers are gonna react to this legislation but I can mm-hmm. tell you right now that there's like not a lot of people who are and people who have later abortions a lot of times are people who are affected by other restrictive legislations in many states mm-hmm. and so states yeah. where like somebody has to where there's not Medicaid so you have to like raise X number of dollars and you don't right. have that much money or you have to arrange childcare twice because your abortion clinic is however many hours away and there's a law in your state that you need to get in-person consent 24 hours before your procedure, right? So now you have to figure out how to, or, yes. you know what I'm saying? Like, so all these things, there's like what pushes people yeah. sometimes into having these later abortions too. I had a patient who waited because in Missouri where I was, you had to have parental consent. And if you were a minor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so she waited until her 18th birthday, which put her in that late term. Yeah. I think it was like maybe 19, 20 weeks or right know. yeah it's harder and then it's way more expensive yeah and slight and i would say less safe right right it's like it's still very safe right but it's less safe to do it later once you have to have more instrumenting of the uterus but later on so yeah, absolutely. What sparked that question for me was that on Facebook, there was a meme of a newborn and on it said, in New York, you can now abort up until the day before. Yeah. And this was a healthy newborn. And, yeah. and I was just like, eh, you didn't read the legislation. So that's what I really wanted to clarify is people are leaving yeah. out the current rhetoric of it that it is if there's fetal anomalies. And I think otherwise people just assume that 
women just like willy-nilly make this decision. What the heck do people think is happening? I don't know. So, so it's true that according to the legislation, there's no end limit, right? They removed the 24-week cap and didn't put a new cap on. Mm-hmm. Fine. But like, it's not like people wandering around willy-nilly at like 30 weeks being like, change my mind. <laughs> Perfectly healthy little thing and my life is fine and I'm just gonna like, oh, it's not a thing that happens. No. People are not fucking monsters. It actually offends me that people think that doctors would do that. Doctors or just women Both, in general. Yeah. Or- yeah, it's really fundamentally based on this gross idea that women are monsters. Basically. And I don't know where that comes from because we're all raised, half of us yeah. are women. And we're all raised by women or most of us are raised by women, I should say. I think yeah. the other thing too is I think back to, we had an episode where we interviewed Dr. Kaylin Klee about women with perinatal substance use and abuse. And she had said, she's like, as much as it may not be obvious because the woman is using drugs, nobody cares more about that baby than that woman does. Thank and you. again, it, it may not be externally obvious because like, well, if she cared, she wouldn't use drugs. It's like, that's not how addiction works, people. No. And, and so it's like when I think of her in that interview, it's like, yeah, yeah, it it can be hard to see that a woman would make that choice. But again, no woman is just casually making this decision. Yeah. Chanel was like, fuck this baby. I'm going to take cocaine. It's only a thing that people are doing. Or they don't put thought into their decision. Yeah. I did some qualitative research in Michigan also about the 24-hour weight law that I haven't published yet. But it's so fascinating to ask women because I wanted to like figure out like what are people's experiences with it? How are they interfacing with it? That kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And so many people, I would ask them like, why do you think this exists or whatever? And everybody thinks it's super burdensome and was annoyed by it, especially if it was like their second procedure or whatever. They're just like, I already know about the risks and stuff because I've done this before. So how come that other one couldn't count? Or like people who had changed <laughs> their appointment dates and then had to redo the consent so that it's 24 hours before they're, it's like, I already done this. Like, why do I have to do it twice? You know, so there's like lots of illogic or people who, cause in Michigan, they, they have like a way that they let you do it electronically, but it's impossible to navigate the website and actually print out the form you actually need. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who are thinking about like, well, where do I going to get a printer? They're like printing at work and thinking about like, oh, I got to delete my cookie. Like there's so much shit you have to do. Mm-hmm. So think about your own privacy when somebody's making you navigate this thing mm-hmm. online. Think about like who else uses your computer and like, what the history is going to show. And anyways, I'd ask them like, why do you think that it, why do you think this exists? And there's a couple people who would pro- sort of like motion towards the protesters outside and be like, it's their fault. But most of the people were like, well, I think it's important that people think about their decision, you know, and 24 hours is a reasonable amount of time. To- Did you not already before you came in here? <laughs> you think like... And so I, so I would say like, oh, did you think about your decision in the time frame between when you did the consent and when you came into your appointment? And they're like, no, no, I knew before I did the consent. And I'm like, but this idea is so pervasive that women mm-hmm. are thoughtless or whatever, that even though there's nobody who said like, I use this time in the way that I'm suggesting is useful for other people to use this particular time, right? Yeah, it's just so interesting how like when we're sort of oppressed and we like how we internalize that and sort of assume like, I didn't need this, but oh. Other women were going through what I went through. The level of false consciousness. Exactly. It's, it's like it was so profound and interesting in that in those interviews. Interesting. RHA also did a couple other important things, you guys. So it says that advanced practice clinicians can do abortions in New York. Yay. So like PA, these nurse midwives. And so this will all be like the impact of it will be 
sort of based on how that gets implemented and what organizations are going to do about training or allowing those folks to provide. But it's potentially a, a thing which can increase access and also decriminalizes abortion. So it removes it entirely from the clinic, the criminal code. Awesome. Yeah, which is awesome because it's we need to all remember <laughs> doing the take back this narrative about abortion and remind people that it's a medical procedure and not a crime. So I think that was another important thing that the RHA did. Well, Zoe, we would like to both thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? No, I don't. Just thank you so much for having me and for letting me talk about this really geeky and important topic. No, we really enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Thank Thank you again for your time. Thanks. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. <laughs>